What would you do if you went for a routine operation and woke up paralyzed on one side? How would your life change? And how would things be different once you got back to work? This was the challenge faced by Sasha Decker, who's currently writing her dissertation on social learning and has worked at companies like HubSpot, Oracle, and LinkedIn. In this episode, we talk about resilience and how companies are still falling way short of meeting the needs of people with disabilities. We also talk about authenticity and how sometimes it's hard being Dutch at an American company. Let's take it away. Welcome to the Leadership for Unicorns podcast. I'm your host, Rob D. Willis, and I work with tech companies all over the world to teach them communication skills and public speaking. Join me as I talk to tech leaders who have seen it all. You'll hear their stories and learn from their experience. So buckle up and let's uncover those gems they won't teach you in an MBA. Hi, Sasha. Welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you here. Hey, Rob. Lovely to be here. Thanks for having me. Maybe for listeners who aren't yet familiar with you yet. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're working on at the moment? Oh gosh, uh, where to start? So um, I always start with the fact that I'm originally Dutch. Mm -hmm. I have a massive, massive passion for helping people unlock their true potential. And Mm -hmm. I know that's a bit like airy-fairy, but that means that that I love learning and development. Mm -hmm. I've spent the last 15 years of my career in that area. What I'm currently doing is focusing on writing my dissertation for my master's in education, learning, and development. And the topic, if I can expand just a tiny bit, is something I'm really passionate about. It's about how social learning in a hybrid corporate environment impacts people managers. So what Mm -hmm. that means is that back in the day when we were all still in office, it was really easy to tap someone on the shoulder and go, hey, how do you do that? You know, we would have the famous water cooler conversations, you know, validate some thoughts, have a quick pre-meeting check-in. How do you do that? Do you know the stakeholders? How does that work now that the vast majority of companies are having a remote hybrid environment? Mm -hmm. Now, how do we learn from each other? How does that work? What does best practice look like? How do we know what good looks like? And so I'm researching that for people managers. What does their sense of belonging look like in this hybrid environment? But that's me, Dodge, passion for learning and development and helping people be the best they can. Yeah, I mean, that's, that sounds like a really fascinating dissertation and also working and learning myself and coming across exactly the same challenges. Um, I'm always very keen in any kind of learning initiative to not just make it about me and what I think. It's very much about what the other people in your community because sometimes the best person to learn from is not some random trainer. It is your colleague. It is your manager. So I'm really fascinated to see what comes out of, of that. How long have you got for that dissertation? Great question. Thanks for asking. So I'm submitting on, and I've got my schedule here on my window. There's no more leisurely looking outside for me at Blue Skies. It's right there. So my, I'm submitting on the 17th of June. Mm-hmm. And then grading will be done in September. So that's when I'll be ready to throw it out there. So far, I've got 168 responses from managers. And mm-hmm. the data is looking amazing because exactly what you're saying, we learn so much more from, say, when we're at a conference. And that's what the data has shown so far. People appreciate learning from others mm-hmm. more than they do learning from trainers in the room. Yeah. 
They both have their place. I'm not going to... Totally. Listen, it's how I make my money. So yeah, for sure. (laughs) There's a study, but yeah, I totally... There there needs to be uh, both of this. Until recently, you were working at HubSpot, right? Yes, I was. I was the global vice president of Enable and Go-to-Market Enablement. Yeah. Yeah. And you've got quite, I've, I've looked back through your, your, your experience on LinkedIn. You started at Shell and then you moved quite decisively into that kind of tech world. Yes. LinkedIn, Oracle, yeah. HubBot, kind of Mount Rushmore-esque com- uh, companies <laughs> in that respect. And I'm interested, like your experience being a leader at somewhere like Shell versus these younger uh, growing mm-hmm. tech companies. How is it different, do you think? That, that truly is a great question. So tech is fun. It's also, I mean, let's be honest, safe space here. She knows and everyone who's listening. It's partly a lot of hot air mm-hmm. that is trying to figure out what it's doing. You know, and it meaning the tech world. So Shell is established. It's been around for over a hundred years as a company. People are there. It's a cra- what we call a cradle's grave company. You know, people stay there, people start there. I've seen, literally seen people who started there when they were 18 and then who retired at 65, never seen another company. And so I remember when I hit my 10 year mark, I had that feeling of I'm becoming pretty institutionalized. Mm-hmm. So I'm either probably am going to stay here until my retirement. And then a recruiter from LinkedIn reached out and I was like, this is just perfect. And I, I'm a big believer in the universe sending me signs. And I figured, well, as I'm doubting already, and Shell and I have to give them that, I mean, they're an amazing employer. And they have this policy that your, what they call your window opens every three years, meaning that every three years they encourage you to find another job within the company. Because their idea is that it takes you about a year, year and a half to really get up to speed with what you're doing. Then you are productive for about a year, year and a half. And then you start getting a bit stale because you need fresh blood and new insights. But then you need to start looking for something else. And so my time in the job that I had was up. Mm -hmm. And it was time for me to start looking at something else. I'd already exceeded my window with two years. My 10-year mark was up. And then LinkedIn came on and it was something completely different. Because at the time when I joined LinkedIn, I was employee number 89 in the Dublin office. Okay. So there was so much in startup hyper growth mode. And I love that. Like going from old, established, everything had a procedure in Shell. Everything was done and figured out. To a company where nothing was figured out and we were just really finding it. We were, as Reid Hoffman always said, jumping off a cliff and designing the parachute on the way down. And I love ambiguity. <laughs> I thrive in that kind of environment. And it completely worked for me. Yeah. And then it, it, going to Oracle, which is like more of an amalgamation between the two. Like a tech company that's been around for a longer period of time, but that is still tech. And then having the opportunity to build something new there. So I think tech is loads of fun. I also think that it keeps reinventing itself. And there are upsides and downsides. For a lot of tech companies, they are being led by someone for whom this is their first big job. So I've been in tech for 10 years now. Mm-hmm. I have to say, I think for my last 10 years, because, hey, I'm at that age. I hit a big one last week. I think for the last 10 years of my career, I'm probably looking to get into another industry yet again. 
You know, oh, something yeah? like pharma, medical devices, fast-moving consumer goods. You know, like where I can take all of that tech experience, but have something that is more down-to-earth again. Yeah, it is very fast-moving. And what you said to me about like three years, then you move to a different part of the company, same model the British civil service use as well, three-year contracts that you do, and sometimes you can renew, but generally you move to somewhere else. Reid Hoffman, actually, in his book, Blitzscaling, he talks about terms of service or tours of service, I believe. And that's three years in the company, then yeah. go somewhere else. So it's, yeah. it's a, everything's a lot faster. Um, before we get into what may be harder, what do you think is the, the best thing about working in those tech companies? That the best thing is innovation. Mm-hmm. I genuinely, genuinely believe that. Like, again, if you look at a more, an older, more established company, it's slow and they are, they have such a, we've always done it like this. We've always done it like this. It's always worked. We're always going to keep doing it like this. And of course, you know, the old saying of, if you always do what you always did, you'll always get what you always got is incredibly true. Whereas tech wants to reinvent itself. Like if you look at Dharma Shah, you know, one of the founders of HubSpot, whom I massively, massively admire. He is so on the ball. He is so incredibly innovative. Like there is no, if you always do what you always did, because he doesn't want that. He wants to innovate all the time. And that is at the core of a tech company. You know, you bring up an idea and there's someone willing to try it out. And I love that. That is all about tech. It's all of the things I truly loved in LinkedIn as well. Yeah. I totally with you. I love the innovation and I also love to enable that the breadth of different people that you bring in. Because if yeah. you only get cookie cutter people who are yeah. the same as the other person, you're only ever going to get iterative improvements. But those big innovations, those big breakthroughs require diversity. And that's for me what makes it such a cool thing to be a part of uh, nowadays and it's part of my work. Um, yeah. But in your experience, like your 10 years in tech, could you tell us maybe about a time where you were really tested as a leader? Yeah, there were, there were, there were a couple of times. I think, so when I moved from uh, Shell to LinkedIn, I also moved countries, which I love. And it was one of the reasons why I joined LinkedIn. So I moved from the Netherlands. As I mentioned, I'm originally Dutch. I moved from the Netherlands to Ireland. And I've been in Ireland ever since for the past 11 years, worked for a number of companies. And at one point, and, and of course, like in Shell, I'd been working internationally already for, for 10 years ago. Shell is a massively international company. And I'd had international roles. I'd been leading international teams. And then at one point, one of the companies that I worked for will remain unnamed. Doesn't matter because it really doesn't matter. I was given feedback that my style, my style of communication didn't work for everyone I was leading. But at the same time, authenticity was a value at this company. And authenticity is also one of my core values. Mm -hmm. I have a postgraduate in coaching with neuroscience. And establishing your values is an essential part of that. So I'm, I'm well aware of what my core values are. And so a big challenge for me as a leader 
who, again, believes in authenticity for myself, but also for my team, was to find a way to ensure that my style of communication was working for my team and my stakeholders, because that's essential, because if you can't communicate properly, then you get nothing done. And I, I also believe that the onus of communication is on the person who communicates. So in this case, me. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, remaining authentic. I didn't yeah. want to fit into some kind of cookie cutter model. I didn't want to change myself. But I did at the same time want to make sure that my message got across and that it worked. Yeah. And the thing is that, especially when people are like, you're too direct, this is how I've been communicating for my entire life. And when I did the, well, can you give me an example? No one could. <laughs> and that's tough when it, when it comes to feedback. You know, when people give you feedback and they can't give examples, it kind of falls flat. And I love feedback. And I'm not just saying that. I truly believe that you can't grow if you don't know. Mm -hmm. And I, I did the rounds. Like, I was like, okay, so this isn't working because if I can't communicate in the way that gets the message across, it's going to be detrimental to my team. And, and that's for me what it's all about. Like, my team needs to thrive. And so I need to do something else. So I did like a full 380. And mm -hmm. nothing properly came out of that. Like, everyone was like, yeah, she, she's quite direct. I was like, okay, tell me more. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I was like, but we love your authenticity. And that was, the, that was the thing about it. There was such a duality. We love how authentic you are. We mm -hmm. always know where we stand with you. And the thing that came out more than anything is that the Europeans loved how direct I was. They were like, we always know where we stand with you. You're so to the point. There's no hidden agenda. This really works for us. Mm -hmm. The Americans, not so much. They were like, bit too much for us. And I was like, okay. So I, I, I really need to tailor my style to my audience. And I struggle with this. Mm -hmm. And I want to get it right. And it was tough. And it took me a good three quarters before I got it right. What I really, really appreciated from my manager is that she gave me the feedback before it became an issue. And so I got a couple of people in my team and in my stakeholder group where I said, listen, the only way I can change this is if you point it out to me when it happens. Like if we only are going to do this at the end of the quarter, then it's not going to work for me. Because again, this is how I've been communicating my entire life and being surrounded by Dutch people in the Netherlands has never been an issue. So I don't see when I'm being overly direct or when I make you feel uncomfortable or when my style of communication makes it appear as, as if there is no room for dialogue. Mm -hmm. So I would massively appreciate if you would tell me in the moment when it's happening, because then I can be aware of it. And that's what we did. And it took time because it also meant that, especially with the people in the room, there has to be psychological safety. And I'm really grateful that there was and that I built that with the people in my team. <laughs> it was a challenge because, again, it was all about balancing being authentic with 
changing my communication. Yeah. And they're not going overboard, still maintaining that authenticity. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because authenticity, if, you're, if, you, if you scroll through LinkedIn, authenticity is the most important thing. There's no real definition of what authenticity is, but we've got to be authentic. But when does that clash? And I had to chuckle because you reminded me of, uh, do you, have, are you a fan of Ted Lasso? The, uh, oh God, I love Ted Lasso. Yeah. And uh, is it Jan Maas, the Dutch guy? Yes, yeah. Jan Maas isn't rude, guys. He's yeah, just Dutch. Exactly. <laughs> so I'm thinking of like the people at, at uh, whatever company it was saying, uh, Sasha's not rude, she's just Dutch. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but I also loved what you said about feedback. Like it has to be specific, doesn't it? Because otherwise it becomes like an argument with your partner. You're all, you always leave the dishes <laughs> undone. You never do this, you always do that. And of course, it's just the worst way to communicate with someone and usually just leads to people in some, some sort of co conflict. So I'm, I'm interested, uh, you got, had an open team, they shared with you over time, like when it was happening and when not. What do you think was the moment when you managed to find a style you could adapt to different audiences? Like when do you think you mastered it? And what do you think was the big thing that helped that push? I had a fantastic stakeholder mm -hmm. uh, in the US whom I trusted, yeah. whom I trusted, whom I knew had my back and whom I knew would give me honest to the point feedback. And we were in a number of meetings and we debriefed every meeting. And he yeah. took copious notes and he would be like, this is what you said. This is how mid-may people feel. And that really helped me. Brilliant. And for a while, I would even send, you know, some of my emails to him and I would be like, what do you think? And he'd be like, it would, and it would literally be, it was so weird. It would be like small words. He'd mm -hmm. be like, if you would just say it like this. Mm -hmm. And well, I'm not going to lie. There were times we were like, seriously, seriously. Yeah. And I'd be like, okay, Sasha, if this was going to work, do it. Yeah. And that was it. It was also about, you know, fair is fair, get over myself. You know, do the, okay, you know, it might feel way too much for me because I would be like, you know, fair is fair. My, my genuine communication style would be, well, this isn't going to work. <laughs> you know, to say that, well, this just isn't going to work, people. Whereas the sentence would be, I'm thinking if we look at this, we should consider this might not work. Like so many words. It's so on touch. Yeah. But if that's what it takes, then that's what it takes. So it it, you know, it was about really sitting down, taking more time and realizing that's just how it works. Yeah. I work is for it, an American company. This is what they need. This is how it works. But building that trusted relationship, really investing in it. And then finding that the feedback I got, like the interaction with the people was getting better and people were noticing it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we all want. We yeah. want to get that positive feedback. People were seeing how much I was investing in it and they were giving me the feedback, you know, like, hey, Sasha, we're seeing what you're doing and we're so appreciating it. Thank you. That's great because there's two types of feedback, aren't there? There's the feedback to maintain and to change behavior. And 
I think you were getting both in a really good way. There were the people encouraging you saying, yeah, this is great. Like keep, keep at it. And then there's that stakeholder who would sit down with you and give you specific observation and impact feedback. Uh, I think Robert Greene's uh, mastery talks about what they call Top Gun type uh, development, where if you go into Top Gun, if you want to be Tom Cruise uh, flying those planes, after every 30 minute flight, they'll have four hours of discussion yeah. about everything that was done in procedure. Um, so having that time to really focus and reflect and look at what happened, what was the impact of that? Sounds like it was really important uh, in your growth in this area. Yeah, no, it absolutely, absolutely was. Now, granted, there were also people again in Europe mm -hmm. who were saying it's too much. So it came down to tailor to the audience. And if there was a mixed audience, I had to decide who am I going to go with? And I was also honest to my team where I said, listen, I have to do this. Like I became very, very vulnerable mm -hmm. where I said to my team, you're going to see emails. This is what's happening. This is the feedback I got. This is why I'm doing it. Mm -hmm. And it may look as though I'm losing my authenticity. These are the reasons behind it. And it was a great lesson for them in leadership as well, because they were like, this doesn't look like you anymore. Is this really you? And so to help them understand what leadership looks like and that sometimes you adapt and that you can adapt without losing your authenticity was a good lesson for them. Absolutely. It's, a, it's an amazing process, isn't it? There's the re see the issue, inform people what's going to happen, gain continuous feedback over time, and through that you obtain some kind of transformation to a yeah. point where you're able to interact with people this, yeah. this way. Great blueprint, I think, for anyone who wants to change a, a behavior, I think. Uh, and in our correspondence uh, uh, before this recording today, uh, you mentioned that there was another challenge that you came across, which is maybe more specific. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So uh, very quick, um, go back in time. Uh, eight years ago, I had what was supposed to be a very straightforward surgery. And that had me wake up fully paralyzed on my left side. Three weeks later, doctors came to tell me that it was highly unlikely I was ever going to walk, work, or live independently again. And they handed me a list of nursing homes with the immortal words that I would still have some quality of life in there. I decided that that wasn't going to be the case. And I told them right then and there, I wasn't just going to walk again. I was going to walk on the Great Wall of China. And I did to the day, two years after, but eventually turned out to be a massive bleed in my brain during the surgery. I walked on the Great Wall of China. A year after the surgery, I went back to work. I'm still paralyzed. I, my arm doesn't function at all. I walk with a stick. And so I'm very clearly, visibly, physically disabled. Mm -hmm. Companies don't cater to that. Um, and it's been a journey. It's been a journey for the past seven years since I went back to work. And people say things like, I've been called the quota filler. I've been called the pity hire. 
I have um, had people tell me that for one of the companies I worked for, I had it was just a company where anyone at director level and above had their own office. And I remember at one point I was in the bathroom of all places and someone came up to me and they were like, isn't it so kind that people like you get their own office? And I was, I was like, cool. people like me? She was like, yeah, you know, pointing at me going, like you, you know, with the... Uh, and I'm like, maybe look me up in the directory. Look at my title. And then I had a peer who told me before meeting with important stakeholders, we shouldn't put you in front of stakeholders. It looks weak. Mm -hmm. And it was a moment. I'd only just been in that company for two months. And it turned out that they had been given feedback about me, about the ability to take me seriously. And it was a shocking moment because I'd worked so hard to be able to go back to work because there is only a very, very small percentage of people with disabilities who have a massive bleed, a stroke in effect, who do go back to work. And I'd worked very hard to go back. I've always been incredibly fortunate to have always had all of my cognitive abilities, like more so than they'd ever seen. And then to learn that people were doubting that, you know, people were speaking up and going, oh, it's a disabled woman. So that has been a massive journey for, and one for which there has been no blueprint. I remember coming out of the hospital and desperately wanting a role model, someone to look up to, someone who could tell me how they had done it. And there was nobody. To this day, in all of the Fortune 500 companies together, there are only, and this is data from two years ago, there are only 92 people at VP level and above with a visible disability. There is nobody, 0% at C level in the Fortune 500 mm -hmm. with a visible disability. Whenever we talk about disabilities, we come to Elon Musk. And I just ask, you know, is that like really the person mm -hmm. we want to be the role model when it comes to, to disabilities? You know, or we go to Richard Branson. And, and I mean, don't get me wrong. I think Richard Branson is a wonderful guy. And I think it's great, you know, that dyslexia is out there. I would love, love, love to see someone with a visible disability. Yeah. You know, give me someone in a wheelchair, someone who walks with a stick, someone who's blind, someone where people can say they did it. I can see they have a disability yeah, and there's no isn't it? Because like cognitive diversity seems to have come to the forefront much faster yes. than any other kind of disability in the discourse, of yes. course. Uh, but in that moment, I mean, just taking you back in time, I imagine it was quite shocking uh, when people come and say stuff to you, which is just plain discrimination. In that moment, people who previously might have thought that reasonable people, it's shot. How, what was running through your mind in that very moment? Um, people try to define you. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I knew that going back into work. I mm -hmm. was very much like, because there were loads of doubts. 
like going back into work, I had loads of doubts. I had loads of, are people going to accept me? Are people still going to want training for some, from someone, you know, who is physically disabled? And I decided that, yes, I'm still me. I can still inspire people. So when that was said to me, it's going to look weak. All of my feistiness came back. All of my, by that time, I had walked on the Great Wall of China. And I was like, are you insane? <laughs> I learned to walk again when everyone told me it wasn't going to work. I learned to walk again when I was told I was going to spend my life in a wheelchair in a nursing home. I'm the last person who is going to appear weak simply because I need a stick to walk with. There is yeah. nothing weak about me. You do not define me. Yeah. That's, I yeah. mean, it comes back to what we said about authenticity. I mean, you are who you are with all aspects of who you are. Yeah. That, and to label someone as being weaker for that is just, plain incorrect. We've seen this. It's been proven by you in, in, in many different situations. But up going forward from that moment, you got this great determination. Was there a desire, do you think, to change the discourse about how people perceived you and others like you? Or how, how did you approach that moving forward to make sure people wouldn't have these ridiculous and archaic ideas? I've Ever since that, and I said, I, I'm always trying to be a disability advocate. Mm -hmm. I have that desire to be that person with a physical disability at a C-level role and to just always show that I can do this. I would never want to be in that role because I have a disability. I want mm -hmm. to be in that role because I'm darn good at what I do. And I happen to have a disability. And that's just always my thing. I'm good at what I do. I just happen to have a disability. And that's what I want people to see. Yeah, absolutely. People and have disabilities. And disability is just another form of diversity. And exactly to what you were just saying, like when it comes to disabilities, mental health and autism and cognitive disabilities you know, that is all come to the forefront, but we're so scared of physical disabilities. Mm -hmm. And the main reason for that, I think, and in talking to loads of friends of mine, is that people are scared that it might happen to them. You know, what if it happened? What if one day I end up in a wheelchair? So that's one thing. The other is people tend to think that when it comes to physical disabilities, companies, that is, is that that's going to cost them money. And it doesn't. And even if it does, it's only such a little amount. Like the average amount from research has shown that is only around 650 euros. And mm -hmm. that is if adjustments are needed, which is only in half the cases when they hire people. Hiring people with disabilities is the smart thing to do because people with disabilities are more resilient, they're more creative. Like I have to find solutions for things every single day. I can tie my laces with one hand. If I drop things, I have to find ways to pick them up. I have to find a million ways to do things that you don't even think about on a daily basis. So it's all about raising awareness, 
around disabilities, how they work, how they impact people, and how they don't impact people, and how it makes sense for companies. Yeah, I guess it's what you said, people fear it, they don't see it that much, and it's unfamiliar. Yeah. So to change the culture, it's exactly what you're talking about, is being successful, a person who happens to have a disability, and showing yourself as as you are being your authentic self on a daily basis and with more people doing that hopefully we'll get to a stage soon where this can be more accepted and we don't have to deal we, you don't have to deal with the people saying those kinds of things but do you think there's anything companies could do like right now to try and push this cause forward so i personally don't believe in quotas for hiring. Mm -hmm. I believe in quotas for interviewing. Okay. So as a leader, when I interview, I want to be able to interview a certain amount of BIPOC people, a certain amount of women, a certain amount of people with disabilities. So I ask my recruiters to find these people. Because if we get quotas for hiring, we may not hire the best candidate. If we have quotas for interviewing, we ensure that we see all the right people and Mm -hmm. we can hire the right candidate. In equality of interviews, it seems to be a very, it seems obvious now that you've told it to me, to be honest. Um, But I'm interested, like just because there's other couple of other things I want to ask, but just staying on this topic, just for, for one more question. Do you think you have clearly not let this hold you back at all? Um, not only have you been able to grow in all the companies you worked in, you're now doing this research, you've, well, you've traveled to 54 countries and every continent. Um, I think there is something special about you that's helped you uh, go on so much. Do you think there's any other tools or someone who's faced with a similar situation, they come back into work, they're dismissed for whatever reason, maybe a disability might be for something else, an approach or a mindset or things that they can do or things they can look for to help them not be held back by that. Okay, so here's what I always say, and this is not necessarily a popular opinion, but I say it in all the talks that I do and I'll say it right now. Resilience is a choice. Because mm-hmm. you see, Rob, I'm not special. I genuinely am not. Resilience is a choice. Resilience isn't something you're born with. I choose resilience. Like there, there is this beautiful, beautiful quote by Josh Ship, and he goes, You either get bitter or you get better. You either let what happened to you drag you down where you take it and you let it build you up. Mm -hmm. You get bitter or you get better. And when something bad happens to you, whether it's a horrible breakup or someone you love dearly passes away or you get paralyzed, getting bitter is the easiest thing to do. I mean, that's what your brain navigates to. You just want to stay in bed. You want to, you know, get on the duvet and you just want to ask the world, why me? Why is this happening to me? It's unfair. I did not deserve this. That is what you naturally want to do. And it'll get you nowhere. There is no answer to that. 
there is no answer to why me. Better is the harder choice to make. Because better means that you push yourself beyond that. Better means that you do get out of bed. Better means that you choose hope, that you keep going every single day beyond what you thought was possible. That is better. And it's a tough choice, but it is a choice. And it's a choice everyone can make. And if you do that, if you choose better, that is resilience. And many people think that resilience is being optimistic all the time. And it isn't because that's what's going to lead to toxic positivity. Being positive when you don't feel it. I'm a big believer to just throw in another name in what we call the Stockdale Paradox. Mm -hmm. So Walter Stockdale was a prisoner of war. And what he said is that you have to accept the harsh reality of your current situation, while at the same time, keeping hope for what is going to be a better time. And that's it. Like things might be absolutely terrible right now, but you have to remain hopeful for what is going to come. So yeah. don't, you know, don't do the whole, oh, well, this is not happening. No, no, it is. It's shit right now. Like I remember, remember being in hospital and it literally took four people to put me in a bag, a literal bag to hoist me out of a bed into a wheelchair for the first two months. I can't pretend that isn't happening but I knew it was going to be better if I worked really hard and it did. And there was a big picture of the wall of China on my wall. I was going to walk the great wall of China. Yeah, it was, I mean, it's, I must confess, I watched your keynote yesterday. You describe it's uh, linked on your LinkedIn page and I'll be sure to put a link in our notes for this as well uh, for listeners. Very inspiring from the moment that you had this disability to walking the Great Wall of China and seeing you up there. Um, and it's exactly as you say, isn't it? It's, a, it's acceptance, which is hard, but also kind of liberating and gives you room to actually take the steps that need to be taken to get to where you want to, uh, be that the Great Wall of China or whatever. Um, I'm interested also for a, for a leader. You know, This is something which can be hugely useful for them when they're confronted with the chaos that confronts us every single day. But A leader also has to sometimes help others who are put in situations where they don't know whether they have that resilience or not. And I'm wondering, just as a kind of last thing to think about today, how can a leader help others to be more resilient, do you think? I love that question. What is, I say, so here's what I ask my team. What is stopping you? First Mm -hmm. of all, like, What are all the things that are going on in your head? So when people are not resilient, there's a pale. Like that, (laughs) that is neuroscience. Like we have the behavior that we have because it's giving us something in return. Mm -hmm. Like that, that's a simple law. We do everything we do because that's just our primal instinct because it's giving us something. So if we're not resilient, what is that giving us? What are we afraid to choose? Mm -hmm. So work through that. What are we, what are you afraid of? What is happening? 
And most of all, I've got your back. Yeah. It's about psychological safety. Like resilience is built by knowing someone's going to catch you. I personally, sorry, I personally sorry, don't believe in, you know, there are some people who do the whole, you build resilience by hearing no 20 times. So go and do something scary and then hear no and that's how you build it. But for some people, that's just going to make it worse because that's just going to make them more scary. Mm -hmm. You build resilience by going through things, but also knowing there's someone to catch you. Yeah. Which is the leader, the team, the organization, yeah. they need to have exactly. that. Exactly. Yeah. And again, that leads to a team which is, by definition, more resilient, more able to deal with exactly. crazy stuff, which is thrown at us all the time. So it's yes. an investment which is is really, really worthwhile. Yes. I've loved hearing about all of this. And I, I mean, the common thread is really about authenticity uh, in these last 10 years. Being confronted with situations, you know, you've, you've got you as a person, but also the things that happen to you and you need to be authentic to all of those things. And resilience is about pushing that through finding ways, be it through feedback, support to be able to do the things that you want to and the things that are best for everyone. So as a last question, if you were to think about the last 10 years, everything you've been through and you were going to transform this story into a business book. What would the title be? From the Ashes. From the Ashes. Yes. Can you tell us a bit about that title? Like the, I like, have a like big. Ma yeah. I have a phoenix tattooed on my back. Oh yeah. Okay. I rose from the ashes. And I was stronger and shine more magnificently than ever. Brilliant. Yes. Love that. Yes. Um, for people, I mean, I can wholeheartedly recommend following you on LinkedIn for the content you're posting all the time there, but. Uh, is there any anywhere else that people can uh, can find your work and and look you up? Well, actually, yeah. So uh, there's there's some fun stuff. So um, I love a challenge. Mm -hmm. So my first challenge after I became paralyzed was walking down the pier here in the where I live. Then I was walking on the Great Wall of China. I'm now mm -hmm. going to walk the Camino. Oh yes. So on the anniversary of being paralyzed for eight years, I'm walking into Santiago de Compostela. Mm -hmm. Finishing the last 110 kilometers. Yeah. So uh, you can follow that on Instagram, Hemiplegic Walk in the Camino. Okay, cool. I'm, of course, on Twitter, um, at Sasha HM, and I'm on LinkedIn. Okay, awesome stuff. Definitely something to check out afterwards, and I'll be sure to link to all of that. But Sasha, all I can say is thank you so much for such an inspiring 45 minutes. Thank you. Thanks, Rob. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Leadership for Unicorns podcast. Before you head off, I've got a small request to make. If you know another tech leader who would appreciate some of the ideas from this episode, please just click share and send it over to them. Also be sure to hit subscribe and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts. It really does help. Until next time, I've been your host, Rob D. Willis. Thank you and goodbye.